Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me today on the Class War Battlefield podcast. Please do me the honor of supporting this work that I am doing. I've been doing this work now for free on your behalf for, my God, 11 years. 5, 10, 20, 50. If you can afford it, please do cash at me at dollar sign CWB podcast CWB podcast cash app it CWB podcast also also hit me up on PayPal CWB podcast all the way across the board y'all help me out help me out help me out thank you for donating and enjoy the show book, Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam states, a well-connected individual in a poorly connected society is not as productive as a well-connected individual in a well-connected society. Each of us are part of a larger culture that influences the way we act, think, and collaborate with one another. But ironically, with the now endless amount of new cultures and different ways of thinking, the presence of communities and genuine social connection has plummeted significantly. So when did the shift from an emphasis on community to an emphasis on the individual start and how? What are the pros and cons of this change and what can we do about it moving forward? Those are the questions that I will be attempting to answer in this video. A good place we can take some ideas, and not just ideas, but real evidence from, is the book I quoted at the beginning of this video, Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of the American Community by Robert Putnam. In his book, Putnam seeks to explain the decline in communities and social bonding that started happening in the United States around 1950. What Putnam did with this book is something that a lot of YouTubers, including myself, fail to do when talking about modern issues. He conducted a real study. Instead of just looking at correlations across time and assuming they were the cause, he accounted for several other factors and made sure that each of his reasons were statistically significant and had research to back them up. So here's what he found. The five biggest contributions to the decline in community are generational differences, TV, the pressures of time and money, urban sprawl, and the last 15% remained unexplained. So let's start off with the first one, which will end up actually tying into TV and time and money as well. Essentially what's meant by generational differences is the differences in social habits between generations. And we can start off with political involvement. First off, Americans' interest in politics and picking a side of the political party has been on the decline. In fact, the number of eligible Americans who voted in elections dropped from 62.8% in 1960 to 48.9% in 1996. This follows the trend of a genuine disinterest in politics. People don't read newspapers as much, nor do they watch the news on TV as much. Now, why this has happened is a little harder to pinpoint. Perhaps it's because news outlets started promoting more polarizing, clickbaity, fear-driven headlines that made people feel worse about the world instead of empower them to do something about it. Or maybe it's the fact that the American government's lies have been continuously getting more and more exposed now that we have access to so much more information since the rise of the internet. So that lack of trust in our government could lead to a lack 
lack of voting and political involvement. Either way, the consequences of this in relation to community are clear. Many political activities, such as meetings and rallies, require large groups of people, aka a community of people working towards a shared goal. And although there are more political organizations than ever before, the likelihood of someone joining and committing to one of these communities is far lower. What was once a source for collaboration and potential positive change has now fizzled out into a less incentivized, more individualistic approach that each person tries figuring out for themselves. This trend can be seen not just within political parties, but within any type of social groups. All forms of civic engagement, aka group activities that try to tackle public issues, have declined. But it's really the way in which this has happened that matters the most. Before the digital age, engaging in some sort of community-based, work-based, or civil-based group almost always required face-to-face -face interaction. You would really work with people hands-on to progress or make some sort of positive change. But now, joining and participating in an organization could be as simple as just pressing a join button on your web browser. And the result of this is more of a reliance on centralized organizations with professional staff and no local chapters, aka getting locally involved with members of the community in real life. In this way, letting automation, comfort, and people in positions of power take over our decision making has cost the average person a lot of their own power to make a significant change within local residency. And when people feel like what they do doesn't really make a significant change, even if they do end up finding a group like that, then they start to think, why even try to join more groups like that? That feeling of a lack of incentive to meet others and interact with others in that way is where I feel like a lot of young people's heads are at right now. Another generational change that I've talked about in previous videos is the decline in religious participation. Between 1966 and 1997, the fraction of college freshmen who avowed none as their religious preference doubled. And it's been shown in several studies that people who attend religious institutions are more likely to participate in philanthropic activities, visit with friends, and join sports groups. Along with that, those people who have still decided to be church members have become increasingly more dedicated to their religion. Meaning that not only are people who don't have any religious affiliation experiencing a lack of social connection, trust, and validation, but also the people who are still dedicated to religion are becoming increasingly less accepting of people who do not agree with their religion. As Putnam puts it, the country is becoming ever more clearly divided into two groups, the devoutly observant and the entirely unchurched. Now I personally think that a lot of religions have flaws that need addressing, such as the cult-like nature that they try to impose on their followers how some members treat non-members, and how they try to justify morally wrong actions. But the way in which they help the average person feel a sense of connection, albeit a pretty flawed one, is generally positive. But enough about these political and religious organizations, let's talk more about everyday life, starting with the workplace. The way in which we work now, and the objective of each person within a company, has changed pretty dramatically in the past 60 to 70 years. Labor unions, which are an organization of workers focused on maintaining and improving the conditions of their employment peaked during the 1950s and 1960s. But since 1975, union membership has plummeted. Unions are a great way of reducing your chances of getting exploited for your work, but they are also a great way to build a sense of connection, community, and trust with your coworkers. With unions, work becomes less about how can we build the most profitable, fastest growing company alive, and more about how can we build something long term that is mutually beneficial and rewarding. 
Without that, work tends to become very individual focused, especially considering the types of jobs that a lot of Americans work now. In your standard 9 to 5 office job, one is primarily focused on how they can either climb the ranks to make more money, or how they can get out of this soul-sucking job as soon as possible and find a more impactful one. Part of that shift in focus may have to do with the type of work that the typical American is doing, but I believe it more so has to do with the fact that people are working more hours than ever and are overstressed and underpaid more than ever. With inflation rising to its highest percentage in 40 years and rent and housing prices being comically high, most people can't afford to put their focus on trying to build relationships both in and out of work. A lot of people have to work two jobs simply to just live at this point, and it leaves basically no room for participation in social organizations. So we've basically been left with no choice other than to make money our primary focus. Not only that, but it's also not even required for one to go into work anymore. Remote jobs, thanks to their flexibility, are on the rise. So even if the outrageous prices of things today weren't apparent, many people just don't find value in going into work and meeting with their coworkers face-to-face -face anyways. But let's say the average person actually does manage to get some free time on their hands outside of work to just hang out with people. What happens now? Well, the way in which we spend our free time and how we entertain each other has changed quite a bit too. So now, let's look at how that change has influenced informal social connections. Let's Let's think back to the early 20th century. What is the highest form of entertainment that one could partake in? If you wanted to escape your boredom, it was most likely going to involve some sort of human interaction. You'd meet up with your friends to play some cards, join a club, or participate in sports. Because of this, the practice of entertaining your friends and becoming socially competent was an important skill to master. You want entertainment now? Well, you're simply one click of a button away thanks to your TV or smartphone. You want to feel like you have a social connection with someone without putting in the effort required to actually develop social skills? and maintain a connection in real life? No problem, just become obsessed with watching someone online and developing a parasocial relationship with them. Or if you do have friends in real life, do you want to entertain them? That's simple, just throw something on TV or play a video game. Although one could argue that playing video games together is a healthy form of social connection. There's much less of a conversational aspect to social interactions now, and when we do interact with one another, it's much less organized. Putnam actually has a pretty unique way of explaining this in his book. He describes two types of social individuals termed, in Yiddish, mockers and schmoozers. Mockers, he says, are people who make things happen in the community. Schmoozers, on the other hand, are those who spend many hours in informal conversation and communion. According to Putnam, America has seen a significant rise in schmoozers and a decline in mockers. In fact, he says, we get together with friends about twice as often as we attend organized meetings. But even though there are more schmoozers than mockers, Americans are now still less likely to visit with or invite friends to their homes, according to several studies. And when we do end up meeting with each other anyways, it's less about organizing something fun and interactive, and more so just about filling the void. I'm sure many of y'all have experienced this, where you're with a group of friends, and you're not actually even interacting with one another, but rather just looking down at your phones, and a few years ago I might have thought that that is the most boomer type of shit to say, but I mean it's pretty true. Much fewer people are participating in the family dinner dynamic, going out to a bar to get some sort of social interaction, or deciding to join a club or sports team. And so, quenching our thirst for boredom is now a much less effortful, less meaningful, and usually more individualized task. What I believe, and what Putnam believes as well is that this has led to an overall decline in trust, honesty, and reciprocity. I've already talked about this point in my why is everyone depressed video, so I won't spend too much time on it here, but essentially what is happening is due to the fact that we are not interacting with each other in real life as much, and instead interacting with our online personas, which can often be 
be misleading, people don't really know what they can believe in or not. And not only that, but knowing absolutely everything that's going on in the lives of our peers and friends is a very unnatural process. Ironically, knowing more about people has made us feel like we truly know them less, because the ways in which we know people online doesn't always coincide with their true personalities, thoughts, and actions in real life. A collective doubtfulness and relying on other humans continues to grow, and that only makes one want to become more self-reliant. When that happens, people start to employ reciprocity less, aka a willingness to help out another person with the assumption that, at some point, that person will probably help them in some way. And this trust in others' willingness to return a favor, shake hands with them, and have an overall good outlook on each other results in many positive outcomes for society. And the outcome of this not happening as much, according to Putnam, is we are forced to rely increasingly on the law to accomplish what we used to accomplish through informal networks. And in that way, you could almost say that the government controls us because we are letting them control us by not interacting socially as much in real life and organizing more things. But even beyond that, we also need to take into account just how much false information there is out there now thanks to the internet. There are an infinite number of ways of thinking you are right and others are wrong without doing the effortful mental work necessary to be open-minded and critical with your thinking. And so mutual agreements between individuals on just about anything are more rare. In his book, Putnam backs up this claim using charts and statistics to show social trust rose from the mid-1940s, peaked in the mid-1960s, and has been dropping ever since. Now we are left with just one discovery that Putnam made that we have not talked about yet. Urban sprawl. If you don't know what this means, urban sprawl is the spreading out of cities and towns that is most commonly characterized by low density residential housing. So think like a really large suburban neighborhood that's populated with single family, single story houses like the ones you see on screen right now. There's a lot of problems that arise with setting up our cities like this, but the most impactful one in relation to worsening the bonds of community is the long commute. In one study, researchers found annual congestion related delay per driver rose from 16 hours in 1982 to 45 hours in 1997. In short, Americans are spending a hell of a lot more time alone in their cars. People already have to work 8 hours, and then on top of that, they have to add 2, 3, or even 4 hours to their daily commute. For most people, that is really exhausting, so they don't want to put in the effort to put themselves out there and do some sort of social activity. It doesn't become appealing at that point. But something that Putnam doesn't mention in his book that I become aware of recently and is kind of related to urban sprawl is just how different city streets are set up in America as opposed to other countries. Most streets in American cities are designed for cars to come through, have very little walkways, and are riddled with apartment housing and parking garages instead of storefronts. Whereas if you take a look at the design of many European city streets, they will have large walking areas, a lot of cafes, small shop storefronts, and maybe some rivers going through the middle. This type of structural setup encourages people to actually walk around cities, engage with each other, chill outside, and do fun activities. Most American cities are very car-centric, simply focused on commuting and business, which could undoubtedly make people less inspired to talk to one another, join a community, and form social connections. So all that's left now is the 15% of the decline in positive community that Putnam could not explain. Now you have to keep in mind that this book was written in 2000 and the world has drastically changed since then. And I think he actually wrote a revised and updated version of that book, but I couldn't be bothered to read it. 
But if he were to have written that book today, he probably would have found out that the rise of social media, increasing the spread of misinformation, rise of internet echo chambers which produce disagreement, and maybe even the structural design of major cities are contributing to these community-related problems too, just like we talked about. Of course, if you can think of a glaringly obvious one that I didn't go over, then feel free to leave that in the comments below. But before you do that, I think it's important we ask the question, what can we do now and how can we improve this situation? Because as many studies show, increasing our social capital improves our economic state, overall well-being, reduces crime, and lessens inequality. Well, the kind of good news is that we've actually seen this trend from communitarianism to individualism before in the US. In fact, America seems to go through cyclical periods where in the late 19th and early 20th century, we were very individualistic and polarizing like we are now. Then we went towards being more community focused starting in the mid 20th century, and now we are back to being more self-centered once again. This phenomenon was expressed in another one of Putnam's works, The Upswing, where he represents this trend as an upside down you. When looking at the graph as a whole, the curved line represents the rate of things like wealth equality, racial equality, and social cooperation over the past 100 years or so in the US. So we have fixed this before, meaning it is possible for us to fix it again with kind of the same solutions, but probably an updated version of those solutions. What's required of us is what was present within that era when we peaked. A progressive era which produced a solid balance between individual rights and shared ideals. As famous aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville put it, individualism, rightly understood, is perfectly compatible with community and equality. When we share common interests and goals while respecting each person's individual rights, that is when we create a society that functions the most smoothly. We as individuals need to start a culture shift, one that transitions from always needing to be right, focusing on outwardly appearances, materialism, and clout, to community, cooperation, and trust building. It means certain restrictions must be set on the things that take us away from being encouraged to meet face-to-face -face in organized meetings to talk about issues, and less time needs to be focused on insane working hours just to make a living. It means we allow people to be more vulnerable and speak up about certain unfair conditions and sufferings that we all share as human beings instead of constantly judging each other at every chance we get. Because yes, a lot of us have a lot more in common than we're all led to believe by the hyper-reality of the online world. And I think we are getting closer and closer to that tipping point. The young adults like myself, who were born in the mid to late 90s and basically used as guinea pigs for these emerging technologies, are now becoming more and more cognizant of the downsides of these new ways of limited face-to-face -face interaction. It's only being talked about more and more, and it needs to get to that point in order for the general public to start to act. Because it is the public that drives social change, not politicians, business leaders, or interest groups. When we work from the bottom up, and each person slowly changes the way in which we interact with one another and converse with each other, that is when we'll actually start to see significant change. Most of us think we're completely powerless against this, but if enough of us come together and actually do this, then we can start to tilt that trend upward again. Even starting with something as simple as looking at and genuinely smiling at a stranger, sparking up some random conversation, or reaching out to a friend to remind them you're thinking about them does a hell of a lot more than you realize. Be the mocker, aka the person that starts some sort of organized community within your local residency. 
start making people more aware of what I've made you aware of here and collaborate on potential small solutions that will lead to big results. This is exactly what they did in the 60s to start to improve the opportunities and lifestyles for almost everyone. And now that almost anybody can reach a larger audience than ever, we sure as hell can do it now. Otherwise, polarization, loneliness, narcissism, and inequality will only continue to rise. Do we continue to sulk over the current state of the Western world, or do we start taking the first smallest step to actually doing something about it? A storm is rising against the privileged minority of the earth. This is why I say it's liberty or it's death. It's freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. This is an NBC News Hotline special report. We're at a turning point in the history of this nation. We need to stand for freedom. There's an escalating authoritarianism and even a creeping fascism. Freedom is precious. If we don't fight for it, you lose it. This much is clear. We must rebel. This is our country. We have always lived in it. We were happy. Then you came. We have to protect ourselves. We have to save our country. We have to fight for what is ours. Gentlemen, I'm your brother, Brian Mary Deese. Welcome to this Class War Battlefield podcast episode. One of the most frustrating aspects of capitalism is individual individualism. It doesn't even make sense, the idea of individualism. But... It is still a pillar that people not only tout as being fundamentally American and fundamentally uh, capitalist, but impressively so. Individualism is a concept that is built on myth that one person makes things happen in a structure called society that by its very nature its existence disproves that whole notion now, you may be kind of tilting your head a little bit, but wait a minute, one person does make... No, nah, if you really think about it, no, no. If you have a society, I mean a society, and by the way, there's multiple levels of societies. But let's take the macro concept of a society. You have a society, you are by nature talking about something that is not individual, is not individualist the word that I'm looking for there. It is by its very nature 
multiplicitous, which I, I found out it's not a word, but it should be. A society is, is, is composed of literally hundreds, thousands even, tens of thousands even, hundreds of thousands, and often even millions of things we would call networks. A macro society is, is composed of things we would call networks. And these things, especially in the United States, because obviously that's where I live, you have millions of networks. And a network is a group of people. Now we can be talking about multiple different types of networks. We could be talking about the network unit of the family. Rather, we're talking the small family, the large family, the extended family. We could be talking about organizations, civic and otherwise, which there are, you know, tens of thousands of those. We can be talking about the networks that comprise um, corporations. And I know you don't even look at corporations as networks, but they are. They range in size, but all networks range in size. And there are literally hundreds of thousands, probably more millions. I would say millions of those, I would think. But they range in size. Those networks can range from two or three people to 150,000 people. But they're still networks. You ever had somebody tell you, you know, you, you needed a job? And you go up to them, and you're, oh, you know, I really, I'm looking for work and da-da-da-da. And the person goes, hey, I got you. Um, let me call so-and-so over at blah-blah-blah. How do you know them? Oh, man, so funny story. I went to school with so-and-so's brother who knew blah-blah-blah and then blah-blah-blah. And then I met so-and-so at a cookout. And we started playing golf or we started playing video games together. And next thing I know, he's, you know, one of my people. <laughs> Networks. Picks up the phone, boom, you got, you don't only have an interview, you got, you're in. You got a job. But we don't think about these things. We don't think about how network-oriented society is. Even, even though there is something that is literally called the societies, which is understood by all people, or at least at one time it was understood by all people, to be groups of folks... that were all dedicated towards an end. A 
and usually dedicated towards achieving certain ends. But again, don't think about that. Individualism must reign supreme. I want to actually discuss with you today, and it's funny because I tried to record this last year. Didn't work. Didn't work. This has always been a bugaboo for me. But I want to tackle for you why this idea of individualism is crazy. Why it's just not real. I want to start first with the mythology of the United States. Because this is this is supposedly the heart and the root of individualism. And it's just it makes it's utter nonsense. It makes no kind of sense. But I've had conversations about these things with people, and people have tried to explain it to me, and it just does not add up. Individualism says, or should I say, people who um, uphold individualism, says that <clears throat> it was individual efforts that pushed the civilization that America has presently forward, particularly the American aspects of Western civilization. And it just isn't true. It just isn't true. If you think about what it actually took to conquer this land, if you think about what it actually took to take this land away from the people who are living here, it was not an individual effort. Hell, even when composing the Constitution, had to be taken care of. It was not an individual effort. Oh, yeah, well, so-and-so wrote it. Yeah, so-and-so sure enough wrote it. But so-and-so wasn't just debating with himself. There was dozens of people debating and talking and speaking. It was a group effort. This, by the way, this aspect of the American mythos actually explains why big corporations have always feared the masses getting their minds together collectively. Because it took a group of men, in secret, in the beginning, to not only kick off the Revolutionary War in America, but also to rework the laws and to rework the underpinnings to 
the society. Therefore, if you have what was coming together in the 1960s and was put forward in the um, the new conference for new politics, which is well-connected, well-meaning, wealthy people allied with well-meaning but not connected poor people with brains connecting with well-meaning, not always, but usually, semi-connected, middle-class people, and you have enough of those folks who are dedicated to changing the society, you know what happens? The society changes. You don't need many people to do it. Which is why big corporations fear that type of alliance. They literally spend billions of dollars each year to try and hold off an alliance forming between those three areas of class interests. And when you when you when when you hear that you may say, I don't see that. Yeah, I know you don't see it. Because you aren't analyzing the stuff you are watching and listening to, those ads that you are watching and listening to, there are class-based narratives in those advertisements, in those um, commercials and promotionals. There are class-based narratives which are meant to keep those three classes apart. But I digress. You have... A group of people who literally planned the, the Articles of Confederacy, and you have a group of people who literally planned and designed the new Constitution. Where is the individual effort? Yes, there were people who put certain individualist ideas. But notice, the more radical people in that group, some of which are still quoted. Recently, what was it, last year, I was learning about the history of uh, Patrick Henry, I think was his name. And that man has a brilliant history. Give me liberty, give me... That is not all that man is can be summed up by. I mean, this dude was a revolutionary to the core. Or at least the stuff that I was reading about him once, you know. Some of those radical voices became silenced, which sometimes happens in group efforts. But again, it was collaborative. Bacon's Rebellion shows the power of what today, you know, we would call intersectional collaboration. I'm, you know me, I'm not a fan of that phrase. I've never been a fan of that phrase because there are certain things that are, that you only have to explain to white people. And white people ain't that dumb. Jane Elliott proved that. She's been proving it for 50 plus years. White people ain't that dumb. 
So I ain't playing into their game. I don't need to speak on intersectionality. They know that there are places where race and class and sexism and all that correlates. Anyway, I want to go before, though, the Constitution and, and, and the Articles of Confederacy. Because when we talk about individuality, when we talk about individualism, this is, this, is, this is shut down even in the colonial period, before the United States was the United States. It took a group effort to what they call settle, you know, you should really look up that word too, by the way, to, quote, settle the territory. And as people died, it took more people to replenish them so the settlers would not run out of their um, base. And, and therefore, their power, their capacity to actually push against Native Indigenous um, societies and push them out, that wouldn't be disrupted. It was a group effort. They, in order to replenish people who died, they'd send back to England and bring more people over. It lists for me the individuality in that. You can't. Oh, well, see, you're taking it and you're stretching it, and that's not what people mean. That's, that's the point. What you mean is based on a mythology that don't exist. But okay, you know, you end up fine. Stretching, stretching the meaning here. Fine. I'll, I'll, let's, let, let, me, let me play your little game. You're, you're right. I'm stretching the truth. Let's go to what most people like to reference when they say the, the, um, the foundation of individualism. That's the frontier spirit. Right, the frontier spirit. That's uh, you know, man could be a man, and that's where hyper individualism really took hold. It's BS. First and foremost, let's talk about what the frontier was, because that earlier reference, you know, the thing that I just made like two seconds ago, when I was talking about those um those colonies, I was referencing the mid-1600 colonies to even the late 1600 colonies, which were stuck, glued to the East Coast. The reason I was referencing them, because at that time, the frontier was considered like, where I'm sitting, the, Adirondack, the Adirondack Mountains and what we call Niagara Falls. It wasn't even completely all the way over to um, the Mississippi River. It wasn't even to the Ohio Valley, anything like that. It was places that today we don't even think of as the frontier. But do you know how Europeans gained their upper hands? It wasn't individuals. Yeah, sure, people might be asked to go in and, quote, explore, but as a book that I read back in 2013 pointed out, these people weren't going into these places blind. They were usually going in 
based on trails that were carved out by native indigenous peoples who guided Europeans through these areas because they knew them. So again, where's the individuality? It ain't there. But even with that knowledge, even if you're like, yeah, but still, you know, it still took a person to reach down deep to do it. To reach down deep and do it, most of these people were doing, doing it because they were seeking fame, one. There was a selfish, terribly selfish motive in it. And two, they were seeking riches. So all the, uh, they were going into these areas to betray the native indigenous people. They knew they were going to betray these people. And yet they went in with that knowledge and smiled and laughed with these people as they took in intel, which then they could use against the native indigenous people. If that's the type of individualism that you're talking about, you're talking about a psychopathic individualism that, well, it explains a lot. It explains why you have the type of economy you have. But let's push on with that. Because I know some of y'all were like, oh, that you're, you're splitting hairs. You're calling a place the frontier when that, you know, that's not what people really meant when they talked about frontier. They're talking about where, y'all? They're talking about the post Louisiana Purchase, post-Mexican-American War, Frontier. And I was trying to run through my brain really quickly to remember, um, because there was a chunk of land that the United States was given above what they gained after the conclusion of the Mexican-American War, Um, but I can't remember what it was called, but you're talking about a time period when the United States was nearly whole and controlled a whole lot of space that white people didn't control and white people didn't have dominion over. But even then, the idea of frontier, rugged individualism does not work. Why? First and foremost, when taking, quote, control of these areas, the federal government often sent militias in to, to establish outposts. But if it wasn't the federal government doing it directly, corporations would establish outposts and often get the United States to grant them some rights out there or or underwrite the establishment of the post or whatever. But they would it would be one of the two. Now I don't know if you notice but the United States government ain't one person. I also don't know if you notice the corporations that were working during that time period were not one person's. But not only were they not one person, they often did things 
in collaboration with the federal government and and with people who they could convince to go out and do some of the hardest work for them. So all a, a lot of people who get credit for being like, oh, there's such tough, rugged individual, they were sent into areas where they could die. And if they died, the corporations weren't going to pay a ton of money to the people left behind. So again, if this is the rugged individualism that you're talking about, you're talking about a psychopathy that is problematic. There is no such thing as the frontier spirit, the rugged individualism spirit. It just doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. Did people perform some feats? Yeah, they did. But the more that the more time goes on and the more the archives, particularly the academic archives, are made public the more you realize that a lot of the people who are given credit for doing amazing feats, these people didn't do these amazing feats by themselves. They had native indigenous people helping them. They had ex-slaves helping them. They had had, um, Asian people helping them. They had people who were erased. From the record for a long time. Because the the propagation of the of of the white supremacist myth required these non white people to be done away with in order to make the person seem more grandiose. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why a lot of conservatives hate the idea of critical race theory. Because the more people read the archives, the more they see that the myths were just wrong. One of the most... I remember my father telling me this years ago. That one of the most famous cowboys that people believe because he was played by a white man in movies was white wasn't. He was black. The white character that everybody saw on movies was based on a black cowboy, considered one of the most um, successful cowboys, vigilantes and what have you, was black. And I remember when he told me that, I was like, but why do why did they lie about that? And my father kind of he didn't really chuckle. He had this deep laugh whenever he was amused by something. And he would go, and he said to me, um, boy, <laughs> they don't want black folks to think of themselves that way. And they sure enough don't want white people to have to deal with them that way. And he was right. All, you know, in, in, in the previous... Um, episode that I tried to record, I talked briefly about um, 
when these individualists needed the land settled more completely and they wanted the railroads built they harnessed the power of the federal government to force people into laboring towards their ends and yet rugged individualism and yet rugged individualism I'm going to I'm going to leave that alone you know in a second but I really want to hammer that home When we think about the towns that had the lone sheriffs that protected everybody we often forget that the sheriff usually could go and round up a posse if things got real real deep In other words the sheriff, the power wasn't really in the sheriff. The power was in the sheriff's ability to get other people to put pressure on the person if that person didn't leave him alone. That dynamic is, is everywhere. You know, the idea that it's not one person that you're worried about. It's the number of people that they could activate that you're worried about. Maybe that's ultimately what individualism is. The ability for one person to, to, to encourage into action others towards a certain end that benefits that one person. Maybe, maybe that's really what individualism is. Now, if that's individualism, which I could see that, it's selfish, it's damn near Orwellian, but I can see it. It kind of works. I want to now come to the forefront of, of history. I want to come to the, to the present moment. Because really, what, um, what got me thinking about this, I was watching some episodes from Some Real News. No, Some More News some more news um it's a youtube channel that i started watching about a year ago and it's just it's hilarious it's funny it's engaging and um it is what i suppose the daily show would be if john stewart was still running it and it was produced an hour each week instead of you know five days a week for a half an hour it is also what I imagine um, uh, last week tonight would be if the same dynamic held true. I will acknowledge, though, um, some more news is definitely much more uh, <laughs> radical than last week tonight. And I like last week tonight. But, yeah, some more news is really out there and I love it. I love it. I'm all in for that. It's 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 an amazing thing to watch. Anyway, they were talking about poverty. And one of the interesting aspects of poverty that I have noticed over the years is how people take responsibility for not only how poverty has influenced them, 
but poverty being a reality altogether, they really believe it's their fault. And I was thinking on that. Like, how absolutely sick you have to be to listen to a group of folks who are wealthy beyond anything that they'll need for the next thousand lifetimes. And I mean that sincerely. If you do the math, if a person lives, you know, for 75 years, and they're paid a hundred thousand dollars every year. That is seven point five million dollars. There are people presently on this planet that can take what is in one lifetime, seven point five million dollars made, add thousand add a thousand years to that or excuse me, a thousand lifetimes to that, and that would not equal the amount of money that they have. It gets a little bit more shakier if you do a million dollars a year, but there are more people today who could take that $7.5 million a year, stretch it out, or I'm sorry, $7.5 um, million dollars for a lifetime and stretch it out over the course of, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 lifetimes and still not equal the amount of money that they have in a bank right now. Which is insane when you look at the amount of insecurity and poverty that this society has. But I digress. Listening to these people whine and complain about the pores. P-O-O-R-S. Fun fact. When we say the word poor, we don't really know what the heck we're saying. Because a society that is built on grotesque wealth creation needs the pores. P-O-O-R-S. Because they're porous which is a real word, but it's not what you think it means. Okay, it probably is what you think it means. They're porous. And it is through their porous nature that money flows in and out of them like rainwater does on parched sand. It is, it's diabolical to me, man, thinking about the type of ingrained myth that has really taken hold of, of the American, particularly the European-American mind, where they literally take, take responsibility for their existence. Let me give you an example of this. Years ago, I was having an, a conversation with a Republican conservative about poverty. And 
the person was giving me all the old tropes. Oh, well, if a person really wanted to, they can escape from poverty, blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay. Let me, okay, so if a person wants to, they can escape from poverty. Okay, I got you. Okay, so let me, let me talk to you about this. All right, so let's say you have a parent die. You're already living in poverty. Your parent dies. You're allowed to get death benefits up to your 18. And then what? Well, what do you mean, and then what? Well, your parent died. Well, you still have one parent, so that parent hopefully is working, and they'll be able to still help support you. And I kind of looked at him like, you don't have kids, do you? And you do not know the cost of living when you're a single parent. And okay, but fine, 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 fine. All right, so what if your parent isn't making that much money? Well, then they should get another job. What if they're in a depressed economic area? Well, then they should move. Well, if you don't have enough money to help your child because you're in an economically depressed area, then how do you expect them to move? And where do you expect them to move? And the person said to me, well, it's their responsibility. If they, if they are living in an economically depressed area, then they have to make the move. They have to make the changes necessary to da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I kind of laughed at him like, dude, you're, you're, you're not even dealing with reality here. But okay, let's, let's move forward. All right, so it's their responsibility. At what age does it become their responsibility? What do you mean? You said it's their responsibility to move out of poverty, to move, to relocate, or whatever. What age does it become their responsibility? And I kind of seen his brain glitch a little bit. And I mean, like, literally his brain kind of glitched. I saw it on his face. And he's like, I don't, get the, I don't get the question. And I go, okay, repeat back to me what I asked. And, and he did, verbatim. And I said, so you, you repeated it to me. How do you not get what I'm asking? What age, you know what, in, you know what age is in relationship to how a person, you know, matures, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What age does it become their responsibility. And again, I, his brain glitched. And he goes, I, I really don't understand, like, why. And I go, okay, let me, let me give you an example. My father died when I was 14. Okay. That helped us financially a little bit. My mother died when I was 16. And he looked at me like, oh, wow, that's, that's rough, man. That's rough. I'm like, yeah, move past it, move past it. That meant I was able to get death benefits up till I graduated from high school, or I was 18, whichever one came later. I graduated from high school after turning 18. I was cut off immediately. We were already impoverished. Me not getting those death benefits guaranteed that I was going to be impoverished. Tell me, what age, what did it become my responsibility to break that cycle? Well, I mean, you could have you you could have went to college. And I go, okay, with what money? <laughs> with what with with what? But it, you you could have gotten you know you you should have been able to get grants. And I go, no, I already did that. You get I could get I could get loans. 
but the grants weren't going to amount to nothing. So what age? And again, I've seen his brain glitch. And I go, because he literally looked like he was in mental anguish. And I said to him, I go, look, I can tell that this, this is problematic to you. You've never thought about this. I go, so let me, let me give you an out here. Because your ideas are wrong. And he goes, oh, well, thanks. And I go, you're welcome. Because they are wrong. But they're wrong because that question never occurred to you. You never thought to ask that. Even, see, you became, you became a little bit more sympathetic when you heard about my story. Because I'm in front of you. As long as you deal with people as if they ain't people, you can say whatever you want. But when you have to start dealing with specifics of age, now people become real. Because now you're contending with things that are out of their control. If I was to tell you that a child at the age of 10 had the responsibility to remove him or herself from the poverty cycle, you would look at me because I know you and I knew the person. You have a you you know you have kids who are you know younger than ten and a couple who are older than ten. You know as well as I do, a ten year old is incapable. At least presently, most of them are incapable of breaking most cycles, let alone the the poverty cycle. This time, he actually laughed a little bit. He's like, "Yeah, that's true," and I go, "But." If I told you 16, you would start talking to me about agency and how um, a person has the mindset that, yeah, they could start making themselves into anything they want. And he goes, well, yeah, that is true. When you're 16, you have that capacity. And I go, yes, but you are also influenced significantly by the people who are around you. So, theoretically, yes, you can make yourself into anything you want, starting when you're 18. But if you have destructive personalities around you, and that's basically all you have, it's going to become highly difficult for you to remake yourself in another image than that which you are presented with every day. Well, I think, I think that is, um, that's a cop-out. And I still remember, you know, I kind of looked at him a little bit strange, and I go, it's a cop-out? I said, a minute ago, you were in mental anguish because you couldn't think through the question that I asked you. And now I give you an answer that completely annihilates anything that you are going to say about this age, and suddenly it's a cop-out. Well, it is a cop-out, because if... If, if you know, and I go, well, stop right there. That's if you know. That's if you know. <laughs> I mean, even with people who are in poverty who have the best intentions, sometimes those best intentions seek stability in an unstable atmosphere or an unstable environment, not atmosphere. And he was... You know, he was, he was like, okay, yeah, I get that, I get that, I get that. I said, of course you do, because you're poor. 
And he looked at me, and he, I'm not poor. And I looked, oh, dude, how much do you make a year? It's like, like 40000 I go, you don't make 40000 you make like thirty-five. How do you know? Oh, because I pay attention more so than you think I do. Anyway, have you had problems paying bills in the last year? Well, of course. I go, then you're poor. Then you're poor. Oh, I don't consider myself poor. Like, uh, we'll talk about that another time. Anyway, how about 18? When a person's 18, how about then? Well, I, uh, I would tend to say yes. A person should have the capacity to make the decision whether or not they want to break the cycle. When, and then he stopped and he looked at me and he goes, but your, your father died when you were 14. Your mother died when you were 16. And you couldn't go to college. So, and I go, yeah. So, <laughs> I go, you know, you expect people who have been around broken people who have been smashed by poverty. You expect those people to come out somehow more put together than, than those who they have been around. It's unrealistic. Okay, fine. He was getting a little frustrated. He goes, when do you think it's their responsibility? And I go, to break the poverty cycle? I go, it's not their responsibility. They can't do it. And he goes, well, I don't believe that. That's your, you know, there are people who started out poor. And I go, yes, but those are a handful of people. You're talking about in the span of 20 years, a few thousand people. Oh, it's going to be more than that. I go, how many do you think it is? A million. There is no, no way. No, no, no. Well, how do you know? Because they've done studies on this. There's literally, well, you can make a study say whatever you want, not when you're looking at data from all across the country. Those numbers don't lie. Those numbers, and not only that, but when you're looking at IRS data, those numbers don't lie. <laughs> and you stop, wait, IRS data? I'm like, yeah, you don't want that information that you put in for your tax code and stuff like that? You can access that. You can actually track how, you know... You won't get people's, like, social security numbers or anything like that, but you can use that data to track some pretty interesting trends, but I digress. You don't, it's not their job to break the poverty cycle because the poverty cycle is systematic. It's societal. And you, oh, here we go. We're going to talk about um, systemic racism. I go, did I say anything about racism? Yeah, but you said systemic. I go, yes, and systemic was a word prior to racism being added to it. You've been watching so much Fox News, you forgot that fact. We had a little bit about him not watching Fox News because I don't watch Fox, whatever. You watch Fox News, Newsmax, whatever you call it, it's, it's all the same. Anyway, it's societal. It's societal. Let me give you an example of this. And I still remember, because this is when I finally broke through his, his mind with this. I go, the reason why so many people have wrong ideas is because they don't understand history. 120 years ago, white Europeans, who were peasants in this country, by the way, were here in the, in this country, but they were in the inner cities. And he's like, yeah, I've seen gangs in New York. I'm like, yeah. 
using gangs of New York. Gangs of New Gangs of New York is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. You guys have idolized your traumatic experiences because they were traumatic. I mean, just the stuff that I've read about your existence in these locations. They were traumatic. Your traumatic experiences, you have romanticized them and mythologized them. When it was brutal, it was horrible, y'all were murdering each other left and right. And you didn't even have to be in the inner cities to do it. You were just murdering people. Oh, but it was nothing compared to compared to what? What black folks are going through in the inner cities? Bullcrap. I actually submit that it was worse. Because, see, you didn't have people reporting every day on what was actually happening. But if you read the books, you won't. But if you read books from that time period, for you know, with folks who are investigative journalists, who were there on the scene, who were embedded in the working class, which they had no problem calling them the working class, they told about the absolute hopelessness and what resulted from that hopelessness. Horrible, horrible domestic abuse cases. Horrible murders and mob murders. And not like mob as in Joe Pesci playing the mob. No, like groups of white people beating up on other groups of white people and causing deaths within each other. Now, you may say, well, those just sound like organized gangs. They were not organized gangs. The, these were just groups of white people who wanted to fight other groups of white people. And they killed some of them. I mean, y'all was dropping bodies left and right, but you don't talk about it. Do you know how that cycle ended? He got quiet. I go, come on, do you know? No, but I bet you're going to tell me. I go, yeah, I'm going to tell you. What happened was the federal government came in and said, y'all was getting a little bit too um, radicalized for us. Because, see, what started to happen during the progressive period was communists, socialists, social workers came in and started organizing y'all. Now, they were already there before, but they really started pushing and they made strides. And I remember the look on his face. <laughs> like, wait, you said who did what? I was like, yeah, yes. A lot of y'all peasants were communists, socialists, social workers, and anarchists because you had a deep understanding to what extent you could of what they were trying to build. And you knew it went back to an older tradition than capitalism did. The federal government along with the state governments, slapped the hell out of the, out of the big banks and the big corporations, told them to sit down in the corner before they got to slap them again, and said, we're trying to save you. And they instituted what today would be trillions of dollars worth of programs to not only pull you out of poverty, but to put you to work, and then after World War II, because this was all during the New Deal, after World War II, they built your suburban lifestyle. They moved you from the inner cities over the next three decades, four decades technically, but mostly three. Most of it was completed by the mid-70s. To move you 
out of the inner cities into what's called suburbs. They underwrote all of that. That's how they stopped the cycle of poverty and violence within the white community. That's how they did it. And a smile arose on his face. And I go, what? (laughs) And he goes, man, you're smart. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah. And you just changed your mind on something, didn't you? Well, I still believe it's partially, my man, you're going to tell me you still believe it's partially a person's. Well, yeah, because if it's not, then what does that say? And I go, you tell me, what does it say? Well, I'm asking you because I think it's dangerous territory. I'm like, no, somebody told you to think that it's dangerous territory. Somebody told you, oh, I think for myself. No, you don't. Because you can't even explain to me what is dangerous about what I just said. Especially since it's historical. You're a conservative. You're supposed to be all about history. How do you not know this? I just, I just, I just think it's, it's dangerous if, if we don't let a person, you know, tell a person that they have responsibility. And I looked at him and I go, I never said a person shouldn't have responsibility. Never said that. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. I said, when it comes to the poverty cycle, a person does not have the capacity to do that by themselves. It's not going to happen. The reason it's called a poverty cycle is because it's a rut. Well, sometimes you have to pull yourself out of a rut. (laughs) When you're in a depression, when you're experiencing depression, Yeah, you got to pull yourself out of that rut sometimes. But when you're in um, a poverty cycle, that's a rut that is designed to keep you in it. So, yeah, well, then, then then you have to really work to get out of it. And I'm like, see, now your brain's just going back to what's comfortable. White people didn't do that. The government stepped in and created a pathway that destroyed that poverty cycle. That, that is what must happen now. That must happen now. Well, I don't really 100%, you know, believe what, but I, I kind of get the sense that you know what you're talking about. So I'm going to defer to you on this one. I go, well, thank you. <laughs> but that wasn't the goal. He goes, well, what was the goal? Look, you're conservative to the core. You, you listened to about 10% of what I said. You remembered less because I threw a lot at you. The goal wasn't that. The goal was for us to have this conversation because there's going to come a time in the, in the future when you're going to see some of what I'm talking about. And I'm hoping it's not too late. Too late for what? Usually white people... Conservatives start to see stuff when they're sick, somebody who they love is sick, or what have you. That's when they start seeing a reality. And they have one of two ways they can go. They can either accept it for what it's trying to tell them, or they can make excuses. White people love to make excuses. This, by the way, was way before COVID. Anyway, um... Yeah, that was a long one. I didn't really... I was trying to cut that down. I wasn't trying to retell, like, a significant portion of it. And by the way, you know, somebody asked me if I really have had these conversations. 
and all except a few where I've made known that, you know, I was going through a brain exercise. All of these happen. I'm like, I'm talking to people, you know? I was actually just talking with an, uh, an older conservative um, the other day, an Uber, Uber driver. And, um, you know, big capitalist supporter. And I was like, look, man, I've done what conservatives said to do. Remove yourself from, you know, a subject and then go back historically. And I'm telling you, capitalism is going to fail because it goes against human nature. That's the same reason why segregation failed. It goes against human nature. Capitalism will fail for that reason. And whereas he was very argumentative before I said that, he, he wasn't that argumentative after I said it. So, guys, um, man, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Uh, questions, comments, concerns, you know, you can always reach out to me. I love hearing from you. Please support the work that I'm doing. Cash App CWB Podcast. Cash App CWB Podcast. Cash App me. You can also hit me up on PayPal. y'all. If you can do it, make it every month. Trying to build this thing up. Again, questions, comments, concerns. Love hearing from you guys. I'm your brother, Vimeo Diesel Gaia. Until the next one. I've been waiting for something to happen. Peace. There's a shadow on the faces of the men who sent the to the wars that are fought in places Where their business interest runs On the radio talk shows and the TV You hear one thing again and again How the USA stands for freedom And we come to the aid of a friend But who are the ones that we call our friends? These governments killing their own Or the people who finally can't take anymore And they pick up a gun or a brick or a stone And there are lies in the balance